Have you ever gone to a restaurant, and the reason you went to that restaurant, because you had in your mind that you wanted a specific meal. There was something there that you loved, and it was kind of your go-to meal, so every time you went there, that was kind of your thing. And so you went in, you sat down, and then the waiter or waitress came, and they said, could I share with you the specials of the day? And you're like, yeah, sure, because you're being polite, right? But you have no interest in the specials, right? Because you know what you're going to get. You're going to get your go-to, most favorite meal that you get there all the time. But they, then they tell you about this one meal, the special of the day. And you're like, in a weak moment, you go, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pivot. I'm going for that. And so you order the special of the day, and they go, oh, you're going to love it. And then when they bring it, you know immediately you've made a bad choice, right? You look at that, and you go, how did I do that? And you realize that whatever it was they were pushing in the kitchen, right, they've got you to buy in, and you have now settled for less. You, you could have had that perfect favorite meal of yours, but now you've settled for less. And maybe, maybe it wasn't a meal. Maybe it was something more important than that. Like you went to buy a car, and you had researched this, and you had in your mind what the car that you wanted, and then you got there, and the sales guy says, yeah, we don't have any of those on our lot. And it's going to be six months minimum, maybe nine months before we even can get them. Now, you're going to order it, but I mean, you know. And so you're kind of rattled, and he says, well, let me show you some other cars. And so they start showing you other cars, and before you know it, you have bought a car. Not the one you had your heart set on, but another one. And as you drive away, you kind of feel like you just, you settled for less, Right? Maybe it was a job that you took or a house that you bought or a can't-miss financial investment that, that missed all over the place. And at the end of all of those things, you felt like you were hoping for this. That's what you were shooting for, but you ended up with this. Or maybe it was something even more significant than that. Maybe it was a relationship. You met that person, and, and initially they made a great first impression. You thought, oh, maybe. But after a few weeks, you realized that is not the person of your dreams. But you continued to see them, and then somewhere along the line, you kind of convinced yourself that this is probably the best you can do. Now, please do not nudge your significant other right now going, exactly, that's my testimony right there, right? <laughs> please don't do that. But you get the idea, right? And so what that did was it kind of opened up your mind and you start to see the, the disappointment and the struggle and the regret because you feel like you may have settled for something far less than what you had dreamed about. Well, as Micah mentioned, we're going to be in Mark 10 today and we're looking at this encounter that Jesus had with this young man who came to Jesus, Jesus gave him this unbelievable opportunity, walked away, and at some point in his life, I think he had to have believed that he settled for less. He had this golden opportunity, and yet he chose something else. The story is found in Mark, the 10th chapter. We're gonna start with verse 17. If you have a Bible or you wanna follow along on your, your phone, it says this, Mark says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good 
except God alone. Mark records this encounter that Jesus had with this young man who is often referred to as the rich young ruler. Now, of all the people who came to Jesus, he has the distinction of being the only one who came to Jesus and left worse off than when he came. He's the only one. And yet, this young man had so much going for him. Matthew said that he was a young man. He had great potential. He had great respect of others. Luke tells us that he held a position as a ruler, perhaps in the local court, maybe a judge. He seemed to be polite and have manners and morals. And there was enough desire in him for spiritual things that he made this significant effort to have this audience to connect with Jesus. He even bowed before him. This young man had a lot going for him. And even with all of these great attributes, this young man had a very superficial perspective on spiritual matters. He definitely had a faulty view of salvation because he thought he could earn eternal life. This was a fairly common belief in that day among Jews. Truthfully, it's a common belief today. Many people think that God will one day just add up all the good things they've done and all the bad things they've done, and if the good stuff outweighs the bad stuff, they'll get a ticket into heaven. And that is, that is, that is not true. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's only through Jesus that we can get a place in heaven. You know, behind all this good works theology of salvation is a superficial view of sin. This guy didn't really see himself as a sinner. Sin is simply defined this way, rebellion against a holy God. That's it. It's not simply an action that is a sin, though sin manifests itself in actions. It starts from an inward attitude that elevates man and challenges God. Did this young man actually think that he could serve a few Saturdays at a soup kitchen, maybe take a mission trip to someplace like Haiti, and then donate some used clothes to Goodwill? I think God's making a point right now. <laughs> and he could do all that stuff, and that would settle his account with God. This young man, he had a superficial view of sin. He also had a superficial view of Jesus. I'm not sure he, he knew who Jesus truly was. He called him good, a good teacher. But you get the idea that he's just trying to impress Jesus. You see, Jewish rabbis did not allow the word good to be used to describe them. And as Jesus said in the text, only God is good. So the word good was reserved for God alone. And Jesus just wanted this young man to be sure that he knew what he was talking about. Mark continues, verses 19 and 20, he says, you know the commandments, he says to this young man, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus pointed this young man to the Old Testament law. And here's why he did it. He wanted him to see himself 
in light of the almighty God, a holy God. Because when you stand in front of a holy God, you start to see the sin in your life. And once, once you realize that, then it's essential to know that we cannot be saved from our sins by just keeping the law. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter two. He said, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. The Old Testament law works kind of like a mirror that shows us how, how dirty we are, how sinful we are. But the mirror can't cleanse us. Does that make sense? The primary purpose of the law is to bring the sinner to Jesus, which is what it did in this man's case. The law can bring sinners to Jesus, but the law can't make them like Jesus. Only the grace of God can do that. It can't be done by our works. It only is done by the work of God. This rich young ruler didn't see himself as a sinner. He didn't realize he needed a savior. Instead, he measured his holiness based only on external actions and not on these inward attitudes. And as far as his actions were concerned, no one could say anything bad about or anything against the way he obeyed the law. But as good as he looked on the outside, his inward attitudes were a mess. Before Jesus shares any gospel with this young man, he takes him straight to the law. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life, the young man asks. And Jesus answers, you know the law. You know the law. And then he brings him, not to the beginning of the law, but he brings him to the second part of the law, which refers to these human interactions that we have with other people. You see, the first commandments talk about our relationship with God. Have no other gods before me. Don't make any graven images. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in, in vain and remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Those focus on a relationship with God. Those are all how we relate to him. From there, it goes into these commandments, banning murder and adultery and theft and coveting and false witness and how we treat other people. But Jesus starts with the second part. Or you might say he starts with the easy part of the law. See, the other part's really hard. This isn't to say it's not easy, but it's just easier. He says, you know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. He goes on. Suddenly this eager young man who came rushing up to Jesus to find out how he could get into heaven breathes this audible sigh of relief. And he's saying like, thank goodness, is that it? Is that all I have to do? Is keep the law? And Jesus says, yes. And this guy's thinking, I'm in, right? I mean, you can imagine him saying back to Jesus, I've never committed adultery. I've never stolen anything. I've never murdered anybody. I'm not a covetous person. I'm really not. I'm kind of a good guy. I've lived this way since I was a little boy. I've been born and reared in the Jewish community. We recited this law all the time. It's written on my heart. He's passionate about it. I keep these commandments every day. And it's at this point that if you've read about Jesus, if you've studied him, you would kind of anticipate that he would call this guy's bluff. It's right here that he would say, no, no, you don't know 
these commandments as well as you do. You don't keep them every day. In fact, you can almost hear Jesus saying, sir, you haven't kept any of these commandments since you got up this morning. R.C. Sproul, who is a remarkable scholar, and uh, he's one of the resources I use for this message. I, I wanted to read a quote that he gave about this rich young ruler in this moment. He said this, obviously, the man had not heard Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he explained to the people that if you've refrained from full-orbed adultery, but you have lust in your heart, you have broken the law. Even if you've never taken a human life, if, if you've been angry without just cause, if you've hated your brother, if you've insulted him, you've broken the law against murder. R.C. Sproul continues, he says, Jesus revealed that the demands of God's law are far deeper than the mere simple outward obedience that is spelled out. And this guy did not know that. This rich young ruler did not know that. So then Jesus takes him to school in the next two verses. He says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And don't, don't skip over that. He looked at him, looked him in the eyes, and it was love that this guy saw. And then he says this, one thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Remarkable invitation there. This young man seemed to have it all together, but Jesus saw something that was missing in him a living faith in God. What Jesus concluded was that money was this young man's God. His faith was in his fortune. He got his meaning and his fulfillment from it. He looked holy, but his morals and his manners only concealed his sinful heart. The truth is, everyone needs a savior. The directions of Jesus here in Mark 10, verse 21, do not apply to everyone who wants to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, I will tell you that there, that is a great filter to look at what you own and what you have and see, does this seem to direct my life? Am I, am I clutching it? Am I holding it tightly? Or am I willing to say, Lord, it's yours, it's yours, but what Jesus was doing here and why, why it's in the text is important because he's addressing the specific needs of this rich young man. This man's riches were where his identity came from. So Jesus told him to liquidate his estate and give the money to the poor. And then he said to him, come follow me. Jesus didn't say that to everybody. In fact, there were, one, there were, there were many who said, Lord, let me let me." Join your group. Let me come with you. And he would say, no, you go back to your hometown. Tell them what you've experienced. But this time he said, sell all you have, give it to the poor, and then you come follow me. Jesus offered him the gift of eternal life and he turned it down because it's difficult to receive anything when you're clutching your fortune like he was. Your hands aren't open to receive. You're clutching it. And then Mark says he went away sad 
because he had great wealth. He wanted salvation on his terms and was disappointed when it didn't work out the way that he thought it should. The disciples all along are taking all of this in. And what we find with the disciples, we'll see here in a moment, they're shocked by what Jesus is saying, this declaration that Jesus makes about wealth and, and, and material things. Because most Jews thought that if you had possession of great wealth, that was evidence of God's special blessing in a person's life because of the righteousness that they had performed in their life. That's what they believed. The truth is, a lot of people today believe that. In fact, a significant number of people who go to church every Sunday believe that. If I'm just good enough, then God will bless me. In the case of this young man, his wealth robbed him of the greatest blessing that God could give him, eternal life. He settled. He settled for less. The rich young ruler was positioned to make a real difference. There's an old phrase that says, to whom much is given, much is required. It comes from Luke, the 12th chapter, verse 48. We'll look at that in just a moment. To whom much is given, much is required. If that's true about this rich young ruler, then he was positioned to make a real difference with how God had blessed him. God had been generous to this young man. God is generous to his servants. And this young man was passionate about God. There's no question about that. In Luke 6, verse 38, Jesus says this about how God gives. He says, give and it will be given to you. So you give and then it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So you give this one measurement, but, but what Jesus said is God's gonna fill that measurement, he's gonna tamp it down, get as much in that, and then he's gonna spill it over into your lap. You cannot, you cannot give in a manner that God won't outgive you. First time I heard that, Steve Smith, Steve is, has, Steve just, you probably heard this week, is uh, retiring. Uh, he's been our uh, executive minister for, for almost the last nine years, and he's been on our staff for 10. Great, he's been a great part of our team, and uh, we're gonna honor him next week. I hope you'll be here to be a part of that just for a few moments in the service. But uh, the first time I ever heard that, Steve said to me, he said, you can't outgive God. You can't. And I... I said, what do you mean by that? Because I believe that, but, you know, he said, you can't outgive God. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, you know, every time Pat and I stepped out to do something we felt like God was telling us to give to, you know, a, a missionary somewhere, a building program, kids, you know, resources so kids can go to camp, whatever. He said, every time we did that, God has subsequently shown us afterwards that you can't outgive him. And a lot of you know that to be true. You know that to be true. 
To whom much is given, much is required. God has been so generous to us, hasn't he? God is our provider. He's going to supply all of our needs. He has been so faithful to this church, and it's been so awesome to watch him pour out his blessings on us. He is generous to his followers, and it also means his followers should be responsible to use what they've been given for kingdom purposes. He has positioned us to make a real difference. That verse, Luke 12, 48, says, From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And for the one who has been entrusted with much, much will be asked. This verse specifically points to God expecting those of us who are followers of his, who have been blessed, to use what he has entrusted to us for his kingdom. It means we're going to be accountable to God. And that we should not just receive, you know, with great expectation his gifts that he gives to us, but we should use them for the benefits of his kingdom. Jesus told the rich young ruler to sell all his stuff and give it to the poor. So he must have been in a place where he could have made a big difference, helping a lot of people. But he had other plans for his money, so he walked away very sad because as Mark And Matthew and Luke all say he had great wealth. Don't ever forget, you cannot outgive God. There are a lot of you in this room who know what Steve and Pat know. You found that to be true yourself. I am very thankful to God for those of you who faithfully give to his kingdom purposes purposes like this church. Thank you for being faithful with the blessings that God has poured out on you. Always be thankful for God's generosity. He's the reason why we can do generous things. So when the opportunity comes to give to advance God's kingdom or to bless those in need, remember, you can't outgive God. Warren Wiersbe is arguably one of my most favorite authors. Um, I, I love his commentaries. He has a commentary on Mark. I've been using it through this entire series, but I want to quote him directly today. He says, uh, he says, money is a marvelous servant, but a terrible master. And I want you to think about that. If you've ever owed money to someone, you know how difficult that might be. It's great when you've got money and you can use it however you want, right? But when you owe someone, it's not as easy. If you possess money, be grateful and use it for God's glory. If money possesses you, you better beware. You better beware. It's good to have the things money can buy, provided you don't lose the things that money can't buy. We've probably all known someone who made a lot of money and They changed. Don't let that be the case. Mark 10, 23 and 24, Mark writes, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. 
Jesus uses this opportunity to teach his disciples about wealth. It's challenging for anyone to get into the kingdom of God. But Jesus said it's especially hard for a wealthy person. And here's why. Because a wealthy person doesn't have to rely on God regularly because they have resources that they can live on. And given, time, given enough time, they may forget that God is the, the source of all of those resources. And if they forget that, they may become self-reliant. Not only do they not recognize God, but they recognize themselves as the source of that. But then Jesus does something that's kind of interesting. He uses hyperbole to illustrate how difficult it is for a rich person to get into the kingdom of God. Look what he said in verse 25. He says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. That's ridiculous, isn't it? A camel go through the eye of a needle? The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Now the shock that they expressed, the disciples that day, in this text reveals an underlying theology that they believed rich people, like the one that they had just seen, are rich because they are blessed by God because they were righteous. Their reactions if that guy doesn't get in, how does anybody get in? I mean, seriously, who can be saved? It seems to imply that they thought that the rich would be the most likely to be saved. But Jesus gives them some insights. In verse 27 to the end of the chapter, we read Mark's writings. Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible. He's talking about salvation, but not with God. Even for the rich, not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me, for me and the gospel, if that's what you've done, you did all that, you, you paid all that price for me and the gospel, will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Jesus assured his disciples that no one who follows him will ever lose what is really important, either in this life or in the life to come. God rewards his disciples. He takes care of them. He provides for them. However, we need to be focused on one thing. We need to make sure that our motives are, pu are pure. Jesus said that when you make all of those sacrifices, if you do it for me and the gospel, that's the motives. You're doing it to to bless Jesus, to love Jesus, and to advance the gospel, you will receive 100 times as much in this life and the life to come. You cannot outgive God. This isn't all about dollars and cents. It's about a lot of other things. 
But he said, Jesus said, you will receive a hundred times as much in this life and the life to come. And to the general public, if they were handicapping this thing, they saw the rich young ruler here, they see the disciples of Jesus here, they would have put this guy at the front of the line, most likely going to get into heaven first. And these guys near the end of the line. But what did Jesus say? The first will be last, and the last will be first. And that's a great encouragement to everyone who follows Jesus. Let me close with this thought. Like the rich young ruler's wealth, there are many things that we allow to take center stage in our lives. I know a lot of you think that this talk is about money or about material possessions, and there is, some, there is something to be learned in this, but there is a deeper reality here. This is a question I want to ask. Is there something in your life that will cause you to quit following Jesus if he said to give it up? Jesus recognized that this young man had allowed his fortune to be the central focus of his life. It's important to note that having money or nice things is not sinful. Jesus never says that. Paul told Timothy it was the love of money that was the root of all evil. But money itself, it's inert. It's not, it's not sinful in its own nature. It's how we, how we absorb it or how we, how, we, how we grasp onto it. It's important to note that you can have stuff. That is not a sin. But our fortune can become sinful when it becomes our main focus, the center of our life. At that point, it becomes what the Bible calls an idol. Now, in the Bible, idols were images that were carved from stone or wood. But idols today... They're more, much more than just marble statues. Essentially, an idol can be anything that takes the place of God as the most important focus and priority of your life. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, defines an idol this way. Anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, and anything that you seek to give you what God, only God can give. Today's idols evolve far beyond just wood and granite statues. Many, like the rich young ruler, they worship money and material things, while others have put other things at the center of their life. Things like approval and success. Relationships, security, health, comfort, happiness, the list goes on and on. The rich young ruler chose his fortune over Jesus, and yet many today have put something like that ahead of Jesus also. So let me ask that question one more time, maybe a different way. Is there anything in your life that's more important to you than Jesus? If we worship a modern idol, we are settling for far less than what Jesus promises. Don't settle for less. Last week, we read Mark 8, 36, when Jesus said, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? It's a great question. You see, we often see the world as having everything that we need in order to be happy and fulfilled in this life. And that's the choice that the rich young ruler made. But the truth is, there's nothing in this world more valuable than your soul because your soul has the potential to live for all eternity in heaven with God. 
Your soul is immortal, it's everlasting. And so when the world and all its glory pass away, our souls will still exist. Our souls are worth more than the whole world because the world can only be enjoyed for a season. Our soul is gonna continue forever. So when we elevate anything in our life to take precedence over Jesus, or if we move Jesus off the throne of our life and replace him with someone or something else, we risk losing all of that. We risk losing Jesus. And Jesus is far superior when compared to anything that would be an idol that we would put on the throne of our lives. We've all done that. But it's important that we recognize what's at stake. So make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life. If you've never done that before, I wanna encourage encourage you to step off the throne of your own life and invite him to take the center seat of your life. And when you do that, then I wanna encourage you to take a public stand where you publicly confess him as Lord and Savior and then you're baptized into him. I don't think you ever regret that. Not when you recognize what's at stake. Don't settle for anything less. For some of you, you invited Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life, but today you're starting to realize that maybe Maybe you've drifted away from that and there are other things that are now in the center seat of your life and Jesus kind of got edged out. In a moment, we're gonna pray and do some business with God to remove the things that we have allowed to become our main focus. The more we lean into Jesus, the more we learn about him, the more we grow with him, the more we prioritize our time with him and surrender to him, the more he begins to fill in all of those deep, dark crevices in our hearts until there's no room for anything else. It's just you and Jesus. There's no better place to be in this life or any life than to be with just you and Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the great lengths that you have gone to to save us. You sent Jesus to die, as we sang about, as Micah talked about earlier, to pay that price, the ultimate price for us. He laid down his life so that our sins might be washed away. And we are so grateful, God. In fact, those words are seem to be so inadequate to express our gratitude to you. God, but we want to say thank you for that. Lord, help us to see if we're settling for anything less than you. If we've put idols at the center stage of our lives, will you reveal to us, God, those things that may have been edging you out and they need to be replaced by Jesus. Give us what we need, Lord, to remove those and restore you as Lord of our lives. I pray, God, that for those who will call on you today, I pray that there are many who will call on you to be their Lord and Savior. I pray, God, because every soul is so important 
to you. They're worth it, no matter how far they may be from you right now. Whether they have never walked with you or maybe they've drifted far away from you, God, you say, come, come. Lord, I pray that they will. Lord, we pray for a harvest to come today. We ask this in Jesus' name.